When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Will this be the last right hike of the cycle? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jeff Snyder, Chief Strategist at Atlas Financial and host of the Eurodollar University channel. Hi, Jeff. Great to see you again. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for uh, having me back. Literally looking forward to this. Yeah, listen, there's no shortage of things for investors to worry about and also kind of scratch their head because there's a lot of complicated stuff going on. So let's try to get through some of it as we head into the Fed meeting First up, we had some regional U.S. regional banks again under pressure. Right, PacWest down thirty percent. A couple of the ones really struggling. The overall index down. With Janet Yellen warning the debt ceiling deadline may be coming sooner than expected, and of course we've got the Fed on tap. So, if you look across the action, we saw we had stocks down, bond yields down. What 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 are you watching? You know what what's top of mind for you? Well, I looked at uh, today in particular, you, you look at the yield curve, that's one thing to your treasury under 4% again, but that's, I mean, that's been up and down depending upon the mood of the marketplace. A little more consistency in some of the derivative markets like three month term SOFR, where you had massive moves today, which is consistent with what you're saying in the banking sector, massive amount of demand for hedging. Uh, you, you know, before March, you never really saw these contracts move by more than 20 basis points in a single day, but Ever since March, we've had some extreme moves. And again, today, uh, more than 20 basis point moves in contracts, really the September 2023s into 24 and 25, which is the market basically saying it doesn't really matter what the Fed does here. The, the results, the outcome, the probabilities are all baked into the cake. We're going to get rate high, or rate cuts, excuse me. They're going to come fast and furious. And as everything that continues to develop over the last six weeks, and even go back further than that, it continues to move in that same direction. If you ask yourself, why would the Fed turn around and cut rates? I mean, just look around. <laughs> it's pretty much everywhere. Yeah, but t- talk to us about that because some people, and we have some of them come on air, say like, hey, listen, I don't think there's a recession. I think things are stronger than expected. They kind of make all the arguments. I don't see inflation going down. If it dips, I think it's going to come back at the end of the year. What do you see that makes you convinced they're going to have to cut rates? Well, I, the data continues to move in that direction, even though it isn't obvious right now that the U.S. is in recession or even maybe heading to a recession. That's not atypical either. You see lots of business cycles where the economy sort of just hangs in the air for a little while and then falls off a cliff. Any number of examples, I think the best one is probably 73, 74, where the economy fell into recession really with the oil shock uh, late 73. And it kind of just did nothing for six or seven months until the middle of 74. And then all of a sudden, bam, it was like the uh, somebody just pulled the rug out from under everything. Um, in some ways, 2008 was the same way. I mean, you think about the famous uh, statement from the NBER, they didn't call the recession until December 2008 because they said, 
we looked at the data, the data didn't look too bad. And then all of a sudden Lehman Brothers and everything else. And of course they said, yeah, well, the recession actually began at the end of 2007. So it's not atypical to see economic data look relatively good, especially in the face of what you think would be substantial headwinds. And you think you get sort of this false sense of confidence that everything looks okay, despite the fact that we've had a banking crisis, despite the fact that consumers have been, businesses have been pounded by consumer prices and producer prices. Everything seems to be hanging in okay. And then it's like a hollowed out structure that all of a sudden just collapsed in and on itself. And what really tells me that's gonna happen is all of these financial markets that continuously price some of the most extreme probabilities. When you see inversions at the level that we've seen now, these are these deep, sophisticated markets. It's really the monetary system itself mm. telling you that it's hedging for some of the worst case scenarios. And by worst case, I don't mean 1978, 1979, I mean 2008. No, so that's that's so interesting. When you're describing that, I'm thinking of, I don't know if anyone used to see the cartoons, Wiley Coyote or the Roadrunner, where they sort of run off the cliff in Looney yep. Tunes and then they'd be in the air looking at the camera for a while. And then all of a sudden, you know, they would, they'd collapse. What, the, the deeps, the, the, the market telling us this, a lot of people, we've been talking about this, it's been so confusing, and a lot of people have wondered, is it possible that it's just PTSD, like every time there's any risk, we think it's 08 again, because we're just conditioned like that. Is that possible? Yeah, but we don't actually see that priced into the curves. So if you look at where the curves were, say, for example, in the last time we went through this in 2018 and 2019, you had curves, you had euro dollar futures invert in 2018 heading into 2019. That was about maybe 40, 50 basis points, which was enough to suggest something serious was going on. But today we're talking about 220 basis points. So it's the market suggesting that something really is far more extreme. And it's been, it's been, it's been, the curves have been priced this way since last fall. And then everything that has happened since then has continued to validate that that a more extreme position that, you know, all of a sudden we're talking about bank failures again. I mean, for most people, this sort of came out of nowhere. All of a sudden, you know, we're worried about what, what are regional banks going to be doing? Are there how many of them are going to be uh, taken over by the FDIC over months ahead? That's consistent with a market's pricing a 2008 style scenario and the level of inversion that we're seeing. So I think in the marketplace, it's a little more nuanced where this time really does appear to be somewhat, I don't wanna say legitimate, but at least the probabilities are more like 2008. That's, I mean, not necessarily repeat because mm -hmm. nothing ever repeats, but the same level of concern and same level of downside potential, certainly in the real economy, um, even if things turn out to be different, that's what's priced into these markets. It's, well, first of all, that's, that's a very sobering, that's sobering idea because, you know, we, I think a lot of people are holding their, sort of holding out hopes that we could, I don't want to say soft landing because that's been overused. And I think we've kind of ruled that out, but a lot of people were hoping we could get away with something more mild, that we wouldn't see anything really break. Although they've been confused about why markets are like that. So what, what's, what's causing this extreme dislocation or the, or the fear, the desire to hedge and the fear that something big is going to happen. What, what's driving that? What would cause that? Well, a lot of it too is that there's really not a whole lot of answers, at least in the public, right? I mean, uh, you think about, nobody said anything about the banking system before March and all of a sudden now we're talking about banks, which is, I mean, that's, that's already in the same territory vicinity of the 2008 era. And then you have, you know, 
what's really driving the curves is that we have the combination of an already weak economy. I know, you know, again, as you said, Maggie, soft landing, that was sort of an overused term, but even that was suggestive, okay, we have some existing, a pre-existing economic weakness heading into this year before we even get to the worst parts of the banking crisis, credit crunch potential and everything else. So you have a, you have a weak, questionable economy, and then all of a sudden you throw banking crisis and credit crunch at it, and those two things together, that's where you get into the 2008 uh, Great Recession territory, because what made the Great Recession, quote unquote, great, was the combination of the credit crisis, the banking crisis, along with economy that was really not in great shape at any point to begin with. I mean, the, the middle 2000s recovery wasn't all that awesome, and it really started to fall off 2006, 2007 with the housing bubble. So it's, it's the combination of economic weakness, as well as the fact that economic weakness is everywhere. It's not just the US, there's really no place to hide. Europe is not doing very well. China's reopening is faltering. So China's not gonna be a source of strength and much of Asia follows along with China. So it's global concerns about a globally weak economy that can't really afford any more substantial shocks. And oh, by the way, here's a banking shock, which is among the worst kinds of shocks that there mm. can possibly be. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, and, and yet people are falling over themselves to say that this is not a wait, this is contained. You're going to see the Fed- Just like in 2008, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's the worry. Um, but they say it sort of sounds sensible when they're saying it, you know, that their balance sheets are different. It's kind of coming from a different place, uh, you know, a combination of mismanaged banks. Yes, Fed rate hikes, Fed, high, you know, rates are high. That's causing some trouble. But the underlying banks themselves are healthy this time around, not like other. Is that just BS? Some of it is. I think there is, all, as usual, there's a kernel of truth to it. In 2008, the banks that were under pressure were the large money dealers. That was the Lehman Brothers, the AIGs, the Bear Stearns, JP Morgan, Citibank, you know, all the big, big uh, global uh, dealer banks. They're not the ones that are under pressure this time. So that's definitely a key difference. I mean, when JP Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon comes on TV and says, you know, from where I sit, everything looks great. I think he's right. From J.P. Morgan's perspective, they're not they're not under in any way, or shape, or form under the same amount of pressure that other parts of the system have been. And that's kind of what you know me and other people have been warning about is that the crisis isn't an exact copy of 2008 because history never repeats exactly the first time. So it's not we're not worried about another Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns. Although I mean, Credit Suisse is sort of the exception to the, proves the rule here. But it's mostly some smaller parts of the uh, smaller banks, uh, regional banks this time around, as well as maybe some pressures from non-bank sources, even national economies that's somewhat different and maybe in some ways more alarming because while we spent the last 15 years focusing on making sure the big banks are fine, 
did we ever really look and examine at all the rest of the parts of the system that actually did experience problems back in 2008 either? No. We basically ignored all that stuff and said, well, if we don't have another Lehman Brothers, everything will be okay. And I think that's the fatal conceit in a lot of this is that, yeah, JP Morgan, there won't be another Lehman Brothers this time around, but that doesn't mean that everything works out just fine. No, especially when you realize just a small slice of that, we've been getting a good picture of how important regional banks are to the functioning of the U.S. economy um, on a state-by-state level. I mean, you know, that's that's not easy to, to, to switch that, even if they are gobbled up by the larger ones. Uh, is this all a result of the aggressive rate hikes by the Fed? Is that actually the source of the problem, or is that just a symptom of some of what's going on? Now, I think that's one way, one way in which people are rationalizing why this isn't a big deal. Because they think if the Fed broke it, then the Fed can fix it. Mm. And if the market is saying that rate cuts are coming, then you think, well, as soon as the Fed starts cutting rates, our problems are over. I actually think the problem stems from 2020 and 2021, where a lot of these banks, especially, I mean, Silicon Valley, First Republic, were sort of emblematic of you know, that whole period, this distortion, uh, you know, the government throwing all sorts of resources at the economy, just hoping something sticks in order to alleviate any potential downside in the, you know, the pandemic and lockdown periods. And a lot of the banks mistaking that to be permanent money printing or permanent, uh, permanent prosperity. Um, Silicon Valley Bank was specifically was absolutely acting as if that was the case. They built their entire business on this massive surge of deposits as if it was going to continue forever. And so a lot of regional banks have been sort of struggling with the fact that it was a one-time distortion and that as the distortion, as the, as the monetary and financial system searches for a more stable equilibrium in the aftermath of that redistribution and distortion, there's a lot of downside to that sort of um, you know, reversion to the mean, where the reversion, where the mean in this case doesn't mean what everybody thought it was to begin with. So I think that what's happening is, for example, commercial real estate. Commercial real estate, everybody went crazy over real estate in 2020 and 2021, but the economic fundamentals never supported that. So there's a lot of trouble in commercial real estate that's only now being uncovered as the economy gets weaker, as liquidity in the system gets much, much more difficult which means that now we're seeing all of these mistakes being uncovered by the conditions that are that are showing up everywhere. So that's a really important point and if that's the case can can the can the Fed is it within their ability to correct the problem with lower rates will that ease some of this transition to mean reversion or is that not going to do it? I think that's the problem the, the fatal mistake was already made years ago. And so it's sort of been sitting there rotting away, just waiting for the time in which the rot would become too much. So you don't fix you know, the commercial real estate vacancy problem or lack of payments or defaults with lower rates. That's not going to get it done. The, the economic fundamentals just never supported that level of intrusion into the into that space to begin with. I think there are other problems too. Um, I suspect that uh, a lot of commercial real estate loans that were packaged into CLOs have found their way into the collateral collateral streams, which is one maybe possible explanation for why we've seen such extreme collateral shortages over the last six weeks too. So if commercial real estate really is the problem that many people suspect, rate cuts aren't gonna do anything. In fact, what the markets are saying is that the commercial real estate problem is going to provoke the rate cuts, not that the rate cuts are gonna to come to fix the commercial real estate problem. Mm. The CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, how would they, 
how would they explain a little bit about making it into the collateral stream? To me, that sounds like jumping into a dangerous place that could cause bigger problems. Can you explain that a little bit? Why is that something that you're watching? Well, because securitized structures, we structure, we started structuring uh, illiquid loans so that they could be packaged as liquid collateral to be used in collateralized transactions, whether repo or derivative, whatever the case may be. And it was a good idea way back in the 70s and 80s when it really started. It took off in the, in the late 80s. But there's a downside to that, too, because you could be packaging loans that on the surface seem like they're they're worth putting together in a pool. You can slice and dice them up as, as you need to. You can create the specific economic or financial parameters for each, each, uh, each structure as they roll off an assembly line. But as we saw in 2008, and again, I hesitate to make the comparison, subprime mortgage structures, mortgage bonds and things like that, CDOs that were packaged together with yep. certain illiquid loans that we didn't really understand how they behaved under stress conditions, what you end up with is a bunch of ostensibly illiquid, unknowable products put together in a pool that are then, it's at one point, they're valued in a way that they probably should never be valued. And then the liquidity characteristics of those products of the CLOs or whatever the case may be, whatever securitized structure it is, they tend to behave very differently than how they're modeled when they're put together because they're mm -hmm. modeled under a certain set of tolerances and history has shown that it's quite easy to violate those tolerances. So in, in the case where anybody has been using CLOs as collateral either directly in, in uh, funding transactions or as a three-legged transaction with um, you know, transforming, uh, putting up CLO collateral in exchange for say a US treasury and then using the US treasury uh, securities transformation it, it, it allows these risky assets to essentially impact and affect the collateral, the, the systemic uh, yep. position of collateral all across the entire monetary system. Right. So they snake into the system and, and it's very hard to. So is there a way to f measure that or know to the extent <laughs> that's going on? Because this is exactly what happened, but in the mortgage space, in the subprime mortgage space. And Nobody knew who had counterparty risk. Nobody knew where these things were, what books they were on, who was holding them. It was incredible, but we all thought that would never happen again. It and sounds like thing, you're you saying know, there's the possibility that this could be the case again, except now it's commercial real estate at the heart of it, a derivatives, derivatives products that are based that are based off commercial real estate loans. Yeah, which it's exactly, I mean, what really the pro the biggest problem was that as people didn't really understand the the, uh, the downside or how these structures behaved in an adverse scenario, what happened was they just said, I'm not going to value it at all. I'm not going to buy these things. It just got completely shut out, which meant that all of these esoteric structures were impossible to value. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a small problem in one part of that, that the mortgage space, for example, back in 2008, now you can't value any mortgages. You can't value any mortgage problems because nobody understands really the characteristics. There's no actual liquid market for them. And as soon as the liquid market dries up, then all of the financial characteristics go haywire. You can't price them. Then they become non-negotiable as collateral, which means everybody has to scramble for different kinds of collateral. And it just becomes this snowballing effect where the system is unable to tolerate uh, any sort of adjustment in something so fundamental in the monetary system. So this is 
This is so important, folks, that we're talking about this because it sounds like, Jeff, this may be the fear that the market's pricing in when we see these inversions and we see this need for hedging, even though they sort of not no one entity is identifying it. That that seems like that's what's circulating, the possibility of this happening. Yeah, and just to be clear, I, mean, I don't know this for sure. I'm trying to put together different pieces from what we see in the marketplace. Like, as, as you know, Maggie, we don't have any direct, uh, we don't have any direct insight or a direct window into what's going on in the monetary system. So we, we sort of have to get some, you know, have to have, we have to look at the curves, for example, and, and what are they telling us? What's going on in some of the collateral parts of the market? You know, treasury bills, what's been going on in treasury bills? Extreme levels of demand even runs. And so you sort of, you put these things together and while we don't know for sure that CLOs are a major problem here, or that's what's really bothering the market, it doesn't seem entirely unreasonable. And more than that, we can't really rule it out. Um, and if, if, if really looking at the way things stand right now, it seems to me that's far more likely than it is unlikely. So if we're looking for one part or one big part of the overall fear factor, a fear equation for lack of a better term, that's probably right at the right at the top of it, at is least there, according to my opinion. Is there any way to? And we'll take that. We'll take you. Just this is this is the conversation we're having. We're asking you where you're, what you're worried about, where you see possible signs of strain or stress. Um, not that you have a crystal ball and know it's going to happen, but you know this is an important conversation. Is there any metric to measure these CLOs or measure collateral? You can look at collateral spreads or credit spreads on certain, you know, there are CLO credit spreads and they don't look too, they don't look too bad, but you don't know how, how uh, representative those are because, you know, you go back to 2008, you look at some of the, uh, some of the prices of some of the pricing mechanism for some of the mortgage products, you know, we didn't really get a whole lot of advance warning really, really up until the summer of 2007, where they started to really crack. And some of the some of these uh, CLOs, I mean, they're not really traded in any open open fashion. We have you know some benchmark indices and things like that, but it could be that parts of the system that are truly opaque, there's problems going on there that trigger then a, a, the cascading effect where it just becomes more of a systemic issue. And, and it may just be that there's a small hidden problem somewhere, and the markets are saying. I can see this snowballing out of control where it becomes a much, much bigger issue. And so I'm going to hedge to the max today, especially with everything that continues to go on in the same way that it has over the last several weeks. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. This is why, you know, for for those who are not, it's the famous quote we always say, right, when Warren Buffett called derivatives weapons of mass destruction. Um, Not saying they, they didn't have their utility, but what his comment was, was that they are opaque and you can't see things happening in them until they eat you alive, I think. Um, and it just keeps playing out over and over again. Uh, we don't it there's so, so long much, ago. It's incredible. Yeah, sorry, Maggie. There's so much hubris attached with them because they're basically made to be quantified by mathematical models. You talk about CLOs, that's what they're basically for. It's like we have this arrogance that we can ab- accurately map all the risks and all of the potential problems that are in these instruments when Time and time again, even going back to, you know, uh, John Merriweather and LTCM. Yes, you know, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is this yeah, exactly, exactly. We, issue with long-term capital management. If you want to go 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 back in history and check it out, this is what happened, right? Yep, we thought we had all the risks covered. VAR, all of the mathematical formulas that are out there. 
And we think that we know what the tolerance is for these individual products. And therefore, we know what the tolerances of using these products inside an opaque system is. And then only to be surprised at how fragile everything is rather than knowable and predictable. And as yeah. it becomes more unpredictable, what happens is the math gets even more just you know, ridiculous and to the point that these, this, the whole thing just starts to break down. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I, the questions are going crazy, and I'm sorry I haven't gotten to them yet. It is just so important what Jeff just said, and this is the entire reason that Ralph started Real Vision is to try to flag things that the professionals are talking about that maybe they see that everyone else is left in the dark about. And so this is what we do. Uh, I'm going to get to as many as I can. Don't worry. I... A little bird told me that Jeff's going to be back having good conversations with Rao in a couple of weeks. So we'll be make sure to let you all know about that. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I was going to run a clip from Andreas. I'm going to, I'm not going to do that so we can get to questions, but Andreas has his steno signals on liquidity um, that just dropped on the site today. So go check it out. If you are not a member, scan the QR code so that you can access it. Um, he's got some really good stuff too that really dovetails with what we're talking about, but let's get to those questions. We have a bunch of people asking, uh, this question, where did it go? Oh, can the dollar and gold go up simultaneously? Because a few people asked it, we'll start with that. We have a euro, euro dollar liquidity question too, but can the dollar and gold go up simultaneously? Sure, and they have before. Um, usually, you know, gold is, is an extreme hedge against the most serious errors and the, euro, and the dollar exchange value, when, it's, when it spikes, I mean, that's usually a crisis sort of indication too. So it, hedging demand, um, you'd expect that gold would go up as it did at, at certain points in 2008, particularly during, uh, I think, what was it, October 2008? I'm going off of memory here, which is always dangerous, but <laughs> there was a point in 2008 where the dollar continued to go up uh, and gold was incredibly volatile, but there were periods where it was uh, high demand for gold, even though the dollar was going higher, which only makes sense. And these extreme periods, Whatever's going to drive the dollar much higher, it's, I mean, that's usually a liquidity problem or a serious issue there. And gold is high demand for as a hedge. Edward asking, what are the implications of the rate cuts uh, on stocks? So there's this sort of weird thing that we're in where, oh, the Fed's going to cut, that's going to be positive for equities. But if, if, if they're cutting because of a scenario that you're describing, I'm not sure that holds. What's your thought about that? Yeah, that's, I think the initial knee-jerk reaction to most stock investors is, oh, great, because the Fed has been our enemy forever since, you know, late, 2000, or late 2021 with its rate hikes and, you know, taking away the punch bowl and all the, all the, the everybody, what everybody believes about it. And so it, if you think that the Fed is the major problem in the stock market, the end of the rate hikes and potentially rate cuts sounds terrific. And it would be if Jay Powell is right about, you know, kind of threading the needle into that Goldilocks window where we have low inflation, the Fed is successful. Even if we have just a mild recession that helps the Fed's inflation fight out, then we get to the other side of a mild recession and we've got lack of inflation, we've got a stable economy and everything else. That would be perfect for stock investors. In fact, I think that would be the best possible scenario. The question is whether that's a realistic one because you're right, Maggie, as soon as we get into these periods, where the Fed is forced into a rapid series of rate cuts, not a gentle series of rate cuts, not higher for longer, but a rapid series of rate cuts, that usually means the type of situation that's not going to be friendly to the stock market either. And so there's 
there's usually that period. And this was true back in 2007. Remember, October 2007, the S&P 500 hit a brand new record high, even though the crisis had already begun and the Great Recession was only weeks away from officially beginning. Stocks hit a new high because there was that, that temporary belief that maybe the Fed with its first rate cuts or first couple of rate cuts was actually going to do the job and everything would work out just perfectly fine when that never happens. <laughs> That's just not something that, that ever happened. Yeah. And and um, for those of you who lived through that uh, and have the scars for it, you'll remember that if you're in a very serious crisis, you don't just need monetary response. You need uh, political and fiscal response. And wow, we saw some days when that was not happening because you need everyone to understand what's going on. And so that that should sort of, you know, put the fear in any of us. Uh, Commander says, any chance to hear him set the record straight on euro dollar liquidity? <laughs> That's a pretty broad topic. I mean, yeah, I'm is, not sure. Maybe, Commander, maybe. How much time do we have here, Commander? Are you concerned about liquidity, though, Jeff? Are you tracking that? Well, is there a liquidity issue? Yeah, I think this is the hidden variable in what's going on with the banks right now, because everybody's focused on, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had to sell its underwater U.S. treasuries. Therefore, the underwater U.S. treasuries are the reason Silicon Valley Bank uh, failed. When there's been a structural liquidity, uh, you know, sort of a migration that has gone that went way back to 2021. Again, as I said before, these regional banks have been bleeding cash for w quite a long time. And that's not even really that interesting. I mean, that's that's pretty predictable, too. The question I have is, why isn't cash circulating back through wholesale markets to anybody that needs it? It's sort of just sticking. So as, as, as deposits leave these small regional banks and they end up at money market funds, many offshore money market funds, why aren't they circulating back into more productive uses or somewhere or even getting back to some of the banks that they left from? There's there's some systemic impediment which in terms of you know the question here in liquidity, which suggests that that impediment is uh, the problem in liquidity. So this isn't just about Silicon Valley Bank because it can't be. Are people Silicon hoarding Bank, collateral? Are they hoarding collateral for some impending crisis? I think that's part of it too, especially in the aftermath. Because remember, it wasn't just Silicon Valley Bank. That's a you know a regional bank in California. Credit Suisse is in Switzerland. What <laughs> happened there? I mean, that was Credit Suisse was a troubled bank going back a long time. But why did it happen to fail in March at the same time we had all these other banking problems develop? So there's, yes, there's, there is a systemic, probably more than one systemic liquidity issue, which I think is really the primary source of all the demand for hedging, is that markets are extrapolating you know, what was relatively mild banking uh, eruption in the banking crisis. And if there's this systemic issue and it continues to get worse, then... I think that would explain what's going on in the marketplace. So to answer that question, yes, there's something going on here. This is not just about a couple of regional banks who have underwater U.S. Treasury positions. It's always about why were they forced to sell them at that particular moment? Because that's the last thing you want to do. Mm. Uh, David asking, with increased Fed bond issuance over the next three years, where do you see the dollar? I still think it goes higher. That's <laughs> because in some ways, the uh, federal government bond issuance, is, it, it can help depending on the situation. Not because of the federal government deficits, not because of the federal government you know, spending money like a drunken sailor. That's not what helps. Is that the, as we talked about, as the collateral system starts to contract on itself, it leaves the rest of, every, the, rest of the monetary system depending upon a smaller and smaller segment of the market that's actually usable. And that's usually government bonds like U.S. Treasuries. 
So it can actually have a positive effect where if the government issues, especially more treasury bills, which are in tremendously short supply at the moment, that can actually help. But the problem is by the time we get there, we're going to have all of these monetary issues. We're going to have probably a, maybe a nasty recession on top. So both of those things will be dollar positive, um, just flight to safety, lack of liquidity in the dollar system. So the dollar goes higher than maybe down the road, like in 2020, the federal government issues some bonds and accidentally helps alleviate some of the monetary strains. Mm. So uh, George asking, uh, Jeff, can you please reply to the MMT argument that Fed tightening is stimulative? So, Jeff, I, I gave you a heads up before we came on that uh, we had sat down with Warren Mosler yesterday, and um, who is contrarian to say the least, uh, and he was suggesting that he thinks that Fed tightening is actually the rate hikes are actually stimulative because it, um, you know, they're paying higher interest rates, and that's making its way. To bondholders everywhere and back into the economy, even if a lot of it is just sitting in accounts and that's going to have a stimulative effect. And that's why you're not kind of seeing the recession and the collapse and you're seeing inflation stick here. It's one of the reasons contributing it to it. Um, any thoughts on that? Does that seem plausible to you? Well, it seems, I mean, it's like a lot of things with MMT, it seems plausible when you break it down into a narrow case and you say ceteris paribus, if we increase the level of financial income in the economy, that could actually support the economy, which, I mean, it sounds like it's a genius thing, right? Because, and why don't we just send rates to the moon? Why don't we send rates into double digits? Because that will supposedly stimulate everything. And it, it, it always breaks down because when you think about what's happening is raising interest rates relative to where they are is not increasing income in the economy. It's redistributing income away from more productive sectors into more financial sectors. I know it could be positive if it helps out and if it incentivizes more productive savings. But what are the chances that's going to happen now? But even, even so you're saying it goes to what to asset to asset class, like to, to just into assets, not necessarily into the economy. Exactly. And who is holding most of these debt instruments that are getting paid higher rates? And we're talking about pension funds and insurance companies, mm -hmm. not exactly the most productive sectors of the economy. It's not like we're stimulating productive investments where companies are saying, I've got more income coming in for something. You know, wealthy folks have more income coming in, so I'm going to buy a company and build a new factory. That's not happening. Um, and what ends up really happening is, instead is that as we're redistributing toward the, the, the least productive parts of the economy, everything else starts to break down, which is kind of where we are today. Look yeah. at there's there's really no evidence that the higher, despite the fact there's higher financial income over the last year. The economy is going in the other direction. You know, in it's interesting. Cases, so it's, and that's what Warren said. So I don't think the two of you disagree necessarily on the point. He just didn't take it to the next step. He just kind of said it accrues to the people or holders who tend to be wealthy, right? So it's, it goes to stocks, to treasuries, to, to people who hold assets, financial assets who tend to be on the wealthier side. Do with that what you will. You're kind of making the point that that may just stay like, I'm going to say behind the financial paywall, right? Like they're not putting it into the economy. It's in 401s, it's in retirement, it's in savings, it's in the holdings of that. It's not making its way into the real economy, the main street economy in, in that way that would be most stimulative. Right. And you're also taking it away from usually sectors that are more productive that are, you know, a lot of the productive sectors are debt intensive. So now they have to pay higher interest rates to do basically the right. same thing they were doing before. Right. So you're transferring for some of the productive and maybe even canceling out some of the productive pro projects that might go on in an economy because 
paying higher rates. Maybe they don't do what they were going to do before. And so you're, you're, you're transferring to savers with the, the off chance that maybe wealthy savers do something therefore productive with the savings that they get when they really, that's another one of those things is that ever actually happen? Yeah. I, we're almost out of time. So many good questions. Again, I'm going to say for anyone who didn't get their question answered, um, put them in your pocket, turn back up. We'll let you know um, when Jeff and Rao are, are going to be on and um, and what they'll be talking about. And you can roll up with your questions then. I think it's going to be a great conversation. I was excited when I heard about it. Jeff, I don't even know if you know about it, but I think it's in the works. Um, but I did have a question from Angela on this, and I know how you feel about it in general, but does Bitcoin act like gold in this crisis or crash like equities? You know, if we are in another, it's kind of interesting because in 08, we didn't have, uh, you know, at this level of, you know, understanding and um, and awareness, we didn't have cryptocurrency, we didn't have Bitcoin. So this is kind of interesting. That's an element that wasn't around last time. I don't know. How do you see that plugging in, Jeff? Well, the thing, the problem with Bitcoin is it's become a portfolio asset. And so it, it not exactly, but it tends to behave like stocks do. And so you wonder, you know, the, the two bubbles that we've had so far in cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular, you know, 2018 into 2019, we had more deflationary problems there. Bitcoin didn't do well. And of course, over the last year, 2021 into 2022, Bitcoin obviously struggled as these deflationary problems developed in the marketplace. So I wonder if Bitcoin will continue to struggle once the stock market starts to sell off and realizing that maybe there's more trouble going on here than just interest rate hikes. But I think longer run, Bitcoin and some of the other cryptocurrencies, there is definitely a place for them because they're at least looking in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Whether or not Bitcoin is elastic enough, that's my major doubt. There's two problems with Bitcoin is the price is too volatile and it's too inelastic to be a useful medium across a wide enough parts, a wide enough part of the uh, commercial system. But I think you know you have to tip your hat here because here we are 15 years later, and if anything, Bitcoin and all of the cryptocurrencies are doing better than they were, you know, 10 years ago, mm. which is, I think, a, a pretty solid signal that there is demand for that type of solution. Whether it's actually Bitcoin or something else, I think that remains to be seen. But there's there's interest there because, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. Great stuff. This was such an amazing conversation as always, Jeff. Um, I think it gave all of us a lot to think about. We're going to be hitting all these issues throughout the week. Um, thank you so much. It was great to see you again. We appreciate it. And I'm going to give everyone a programming note. Um, so we will be back tomorrow. We're going to do a special version of the daily briefing. We're going to kick off right after Powell's presser. So at 3.30, not 4, 3.30. So set your clocks and we're going to have Mike Kuba. Andreas with us. And then at four, Darius is going to join us. We're going to try to cover all the angles and we're certainly going to touch on some of the great points that Jeff brought up. So be sure to join us then. Great to see you, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thanks to all of you for watching. Take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.